for Yellowstone National Park and the Acoustic Atlas at Montana State University. This is telemetry. Imagine that you're standing on a boardwalk in Yellowstone National Park. It's a sunny day in the height of summer. People around you look at their watches, and then they back up, waiting for something to happen. And right then, this starts. (laughs) A stream of water shoots four or five feet out of a hole in the ground. It pulses up and down a few times, and then jets over a hundred feet into the air. And it continues to do this for a few minutes. This would be Old Faithful erupting next to you, the most famous of Yellowstone's features. It does that all the time, with similar blasts coming from the ground at least every two hours. I don't know, I I get caught up just like anyone else. You know, when I am visiting Old Faithful, I stop and I watch the eruptions. That's Mike Poland, the scientist in charge at the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Doesn't matter how many times you see it, it's no less spectacular to me than the first time I saw it. And uh, the more you know about what's driving this, I think the more spectacular it becomes that it's this heat engine that's beneath our feet that's made this possible. It's, uh, you're seeing the upper expression of this, of this heat engine right at the surface. And I, I think it's, a, it's sort of a magical sort of thought to have as you're watching these geysers go off. While there are geysers all over the world, Mike says that Yellowstone is famous for holding the greatest concentration of geysers anywhere, and that these geysers have a deeper source. Well, in order to get a geyser to really go, you need heat. You need water and heat. And, of course, we have plenty of water around here. And the heat is supplied by a magma body that's underneath Yellowstone. Which is basically a bunch of molten rock from the Earth's mantle rising up into the Earth's crust. The magma body is sometimes referred to as a supervolcano, or the Yellowstone system is called a supervolcano. It gets that name because it can be the source of some truly humongous eruptions. Yeah, this is this is kind of a funny jargon sorts of stuff. That's Jake Lowenstern. He was Mike's predecessor as the head of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Jake says that what defines a volcano as a supervolcano is a past super eruption, and that such eruptions are really, really big. Um, so a super eruption is a meaningful term, and that's when you have more than a thousand cubic kilometers of material that comes out in a single event. So that's, uh, let's, let's try and visualize that. A thousand cubic kilometers, if you took the state of Texas and you buried it five feet deep in material. These super eruptions are much bigger than the largest volcanic eruptions of the 20th century, like Mount St. Helens or Pinatubo. The closest we've come to one in modern history was in 1815, when an eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia threw so much ash into the atmosphere that it was known as the year without a summer. The eruption and following climate change caused crops to fail in Europe and New England, and even prompted Lord Byron to write a poem about that summer titled Darkness. And Tambora's 1815 eruption? It is dwarfed in size by Yellowstone's prehistoric super-eruptions, at least ten times smaller. 
There are a number of volcanoes other than Yellowstone that have produced super eruptions in the past. But Jake says that in the Earth's history, these big super eruptions are pretty rare, with one going off every 100,000 years or so on average. And much like Yellowstone, these other supervolcanoes are not usually the cone-shaped mountains we often associate with volcanoes. Not that big triangle you might have drawn in grade school. Instead, these supervolcanoes are essentially giant sinkholes surrounded by mountains. And these sinkholes, or calderas, are what's left after devastatingly large super eruptions take place, blowing up everything that used to be there. Just like with Yellowstone's caldera, a caldera about the size of Rhode Island. It's had three very, very large volcanic eruptions. Um, The most recent one uh, was 640,000 years old. So that seems incredibly old, uh, and it is. Um, but that was one of the largest eruptions you know, in in the last 20 million years in the United States, and it's you know, one of the big eruptions on Earth that's that's well recorded in the geologic record, and um, and Yellowstone is is capable of doing that. So you have a lot of different things that happen here, yet because everybody has in their mind this one kind of big bad eruption, everybody assumes that if there is an eruption, it has to be the worst case scenario and that uh, everybody's, you know, everybody's doomed. And that's just wrong. According to Jake, the kind of eruption most likely at Yellowstone would have a more regional impact. A small-scale eruption that could come in a few forms. Say, a giant belch of superheated gas and water from Yellowstone's underground plumbing system, or oozing lava flows like the ones in Hawaii. It'll affect the people in the park, and it'll affect the park if if something like that happens. You know, there'll be forest fires that when you when you bring lava out on the ground, it's hot. Um, there's going to be road closures. You might dam up some rivers, um, but it's not going to be a national event. And that's the most likely kind of thing that can happen. And even that is not very likely. One hasn't happened for seventy thousand years. You can still see the evidence of prehistoric lava flows throughout the park. Flows that formed the main plateaus of rock across Yellowstone. But again, Jake really isn't too worried about new lava flows or other big volcano events popping up anytime soon. If I were offered a a job here and I were at the right time of life, I would certainly live here in a second. Learning more about the Yellowstone volcano's past and paying attention to its present is what scientists like Mike and Jake do as members of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Scientists at the observatory come from groups like the United States Geological Survey, the National Park Service, and universities of the states surrounding the park. Again, Mike Poland. Some of us are geophysicists. Uh, Some of us are geochemists. Some of us specialize in gas emissions or rock compositions. Other people specialize in locating earthquakes. So it's, uh, it's a unique group of scientists, and it's all really getting at uh, ways of understanding, better understanding, the, the current activity and the processes that are happening now beneath our feet. Research trying to understand the volcano can lead scientists in unexpected directions. Mike and fellow researcher Elska Dezu van Dolfsen are standing in the middle of a lodgepole pine forest as heavy wind whips the trees back and forth. 
My goodness. I mean, I know they're designed to do this, but uh, it's, it's a little unnerving. As Mike and Elska deploy a sensitive piece of equipment to measure gravity at the site, a pine tree maybe 30 feet tall breaks and falls to the ground while the rest of the trees continue to crack and whine. That would be an interesting manifestation in the gravity record if we had it running when that tree fell. We'd, we'd, we'd detect the, the vibrations from that. Okay, so we're doing a gravity survey throughout the park right now. And the idea is that uh, gravity actually isn't a constant. It varies depending on what's beneath your feet. Um, it, it will especially vary over time if there's an influx in mass beneath the ground, say water or magma. If there's uh, more water or magma beneath the ground, gravity actually pulls a little, little stronger. And we can record that with these instruments. These measurements of gravity could provide a better understanding of changes in the magma chamber below the park and are one example of ongoing research at the observatory. Scientists are also studying the age of gases released by geysers and fumaroles to understand how old the molten rocks below the surface are and where in the Earth's crust they are being melted from. Other researchers are measuring recent ground deformation, which means the changing shape of the Earth's surface caused from below. In 2014, in the park near Norris, the ground began to uplift by several centimeters a year, um, which is extraordinary by geologic standards. This is something that, of course, you wouldn't notice, but uh, measuring it with GPS and with uh, radar satellites, we can see this, this uplift. Then there was an earthquake, and right after this magnitude 4 or so earthquake, the ground started to subside by about the same rate, several centimeters a year. Researchers think that earthquake was caused by pressure releasing heated water accumulating behind a seal and the seal breaking. After that, the ground started falling as the water drained out from behind the barrier. And while all this research helps scientists better understand what's going on under the park, Yellowstone's past of large eruptions can add a dramatic flair to current events surrounding the volcano. In 2017, thousands of earthquakes were detected occurring in just over three months near West Yellowstone. Major news outlets often covered the story of the earthquake swarms and were quick to cite the potential for disaster. It seems that whenever there's an earthquake swarm at Yellowstone, this idea that the volcano is about to erupt comes up. And there are swarms all the time. If it were true that Yellowstone swarms were indicating an eruption was imminent, then eruption is likely to be imminent every year. So this is just the way Yellowstone works. Yellowstone releases seismic energy in swarms. Some swarms are big, some swarms are small. It's what Yellowstone does. So they're not anything to get worried about. In my opinion, they're more something to get interested by. The rocks that are around tell a heck of a story. Obsidians and ash flows and basalt lava flows all uh, mingled together. So there's a story recorded in the rocks which tells the, the the geologic history of Yellowstone, and it's, it's an interesting story. And this story, the story of the volcano, it can be seen everywhere in Yellowstone. It's one of the things that makes Yellowstone so unique. The shape of the land, the course of the rivers, and all of the amazing thermal features, they're all dictated by the volcano. 
Even plant and animal habitats in the park are defined by volcanic rock types. The volcano isn't just written across the landscape, it is the landscape. And this is something special to see, even for a scientist studying it. It's a place, there's a reason that there are millions of people a year that come to visit. Uh, it's really a privilege to work um, in, in such a spectacular place, not just geologically and volcanologically, but also um, in terms of its ecology, in terms of its landscapes. It's a, it's a real wonderland. So come to Yellowstone and look at the landscape and explore the, the geology. For Yellowstone National Park, I'm Scott Christie. This podcast is supported in part by Yellowstone Forever and the Eyes on Yellowstone program. Eyes on Yellowstone is made possible by Canon USA. This program represents the largest corporate donation for wildlife conservation in the park. This is Telemetry. Thanks for listening.